that Jesus is aiming at. Um, Jesus sees in your present and in your future people who are so thankful that you are in their lives. That's what greatness is. There's people at work that Jesus wants to be so thankful because they know you. So thankful because of where you work. People in your home, obviously, but in your neighborhood, who are thankful that you're around and are blessed by you. That's Jesus' greatness. And he has been showing us what a life looks like. Because he's putting his own greatness on display for us in Mark 9 and 10. And he's inviting us to follow him. And so this is what we've seen so far, just as a recap. We've seen that Jesus' greatness is the opposite of the world's greatness. Okay, a lot of what Jesus says is counterintuitive. You almost need to read the Bible in order to get this stuff because you're not going to get it anywhere else. Um, Jesus' greatness is seeing suffering not as loss, but as opportunity. Suffering is not loss, but it's opportunity. Um, and then it's greatness is not independence, but it's dependence on God. And then we saw last week that, that Jesus' greatness is serving, not in being first. This is what we've seen so far. And in today's passage, we're going to see again that Jesus' greatness is counterintuitive. Because to Jesus, a great life isn't actually being free to do whatever you want. So many of us, when we think about greatness, we think, oh man, having all the money, having all the time, having all the freedom. And so many of us think that greatness equals freedom. And that's not Jesus' greatness. It's not freedom from authority. Jesus' greatness is living under the authority of what God says in the Bible. And we have two main problems with this idea of God and the Bible. First, we don't like living under authority. Okay, It grates against us. We think by nature, I think, that authority is constraining. And we just we want to do whatever we want to do. And it's fine when the authority tells us to do stuff that we want to do, because then everything's great. But the problem with authority is that it'll tell us to do things we don't want to do. We don't like that. And then second, the passage that we're going to look at today, it deals with the issue of divorce and marriage. And today, the notion of not being able to decide for yourself what's right and wrong in divorce and marriage is just crazy. Like nobody would support that. And so we're going to read this passage and then look at its implications for the pursuit of a truly great life. All right, so this is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. It's also going to be up here on the slides as we read through it. Friends, listen. This is God's word. And that he left there, this is Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
This is God's word. On the surface, this passage is a discussion about divorce and marriage, uh, and even remarriage. Um, Verse 2, the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they ask Jesus to weigh in on a debated topic. And so this is like when politicians are running for office and they're asked by the media to weigh in on the issues of the day. So that's what's going on on the surface. But under the surface, this is actually a trap. Okay, and the verses tell us that. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, which is just a nice way of saying trap him, um, the Pharisees are coming with a hidden agenda. We know that from back in chapter 3, the Pharisees have been plotting to destroy Jesus because Jesus was a direct threat to their authority. Jesus spent quite a bit of time exposing their hypocrisy. Jesus was showing more and more people that the religious leaders were manipulating the crowds um, and using their authority to stay in control and to stay powerful. And so they got to a place where now they want Jesus dead. And so they come to Jesus asking him about the issue of divorce. Is it lawful for a man, verse 2 says, to divorce his wife? Now this wasn't a random topic to ask Jesus about. The Pharisees picked this topic in particular because they knew that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' forerunner, he was the one who came and announced that Jesus was coming and told everybody when he came that, hey, that's the one, he's the Messiah, he's the king, follow him. And John the Baptist was executed because of his divorce or his views on divorce. Okay, remember in chapter 6, we see that John the Baptist's views were way out of step with the political authorities of John's day. Mark told us in chapter 6 how John's views of divorce and marriage and remarriage got him killed by King Herod. And so the Pharisees are thinking, if Jesus thinks anything like John the Baptist, then if he says the wrong thing, we can go to Herod. And as with John, so also Jesus will be removed from our way. This makes me think, I mean, what would happen if your views on marriage and divorce could get you into trouble? Ever thought about that? What if you were confronted on your views because the authorities in the land thought that your views on marriage or divorce were wrong or unhelpful or hateful? What if someone were trying to trap you into saying something about divorce and marriage that they could use against you? That's where Jesus is right now. Okay, that's what's going on here in this passage. They're saying, Jesus, what do you believe about divorce? And just so you know, everything that you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, in Jesus' response, we see aspects of his greatness. Okay, we're going to see aspects of his greatness in the way that Jesus, always the master, and completely human answers these things. And so first, what we're going to see, if you want to take notes, if you want to follow Jesus' greatness, you need to live under the authority of the Bible. Okay, this is verse 3. They ask the question in verse 2, and Jesus' response is verse 3. He says, well, what did Moses command you? This is Jesus saying, well, what does the Bible say? And honestly, when I stop to think about this, this blows me away. This blows me away because this is Jesus. This is Jesus who is the Messiah. But he says, well, what does the Bible say? 
This is God's anointed king who God sent to save the world. But he says that what matters most is what God has told us in the Bible. You see that? He says that what matters most is what God has told us. Like this is the Jesus who has been doing miracles. He has power over storms and thunder and lightning. Right? Anybody catch that yesterday? Jesus is strong enough and powerful enough to put all of that to to an end. He can stop it in the middle. He did that on the Sea of Galilee a number of times. He has that kind of power. He has power over disease, over sickness, over death. But he responds to this question not with his own opinion, but he responds as a man who lives as though what matters most is what the Bible says. Friends, this is God walking on earth. And he says, you know what? I am living under the authority of the Bible. That's what matters most. We think that greatness is being in authority. Right? We think that we would be great if we could determine what we can and can't do. If we could determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. We think that's greatness. We really do. We think that we're going to be best off when we're the one in control, when we can say, yeah, no, yes, no, yeah, 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 no, no, no. Like, we think that our life will be most fulfilling if we can stand before the menu of ideas and options out there and pick and choose what we want to have for our worldview lunch. But I want you to see this. That when God himself walks on the earth, the greatest human being ever to live, that his greatness is expressed in living and submitting to the authority of the Bible. Verse 3, well, what did Moses command you? And the religious leaders have a response. They're ready for a response. They respond in verse 4. Up here on the screen in your bulletin, they say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they're referring to a verse in the Old Testament that Moses wrote. It's Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Let me show it to you. Um, it says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And it goes on from here. So the religious leaders of the day say, hey, you know what? Moses said we could do this. So it's all cool. Like divorce is fine. This is bad proof texting. Okay? If you've been around the church at all, proof texting is when you quote a verse and say that's the end of the discussion. Um, this is not uh, a good way. So there are times when the Bible says something, you're like, oh man, that's the answer. Like, that's it. And then there's times where you might do that, and it's like, wait, hold on a second. Um, this verse does speak to the issue of divorce, but it speaks to the issue of divorce in a way that doesn't ask, what does the whole Bible teach? Right, yeah, okay, this is one verse, but is there any other verses that might also help us to understand what the Bible has to say about divorce. There's a reason why they go here and here alone. It's because they're not actually interested in what the Bible has to say. 
Um, they're not interested in what God thinks or how God feels about this. This is a group of people who want to find something to justify their own sin. Okay? And we know this because the religious leaders of Jesus' day actually created the any clause divorce, which simply stated that you could get divorced for any clause. And what they did was they took this verse and they actually tweaked it and changed it in a way that gets into more detail than we have today. But there are documents that show people were divorced because of wrinkles that showed up after the wedding ceremony. That was the ground of divorce. You got wrinkles. You didn't have these before. I didn't know what I was getting into. Therefore, here you go. We also see that um, a wife burned a meal and so was divorced because she burned a meal. Um, So suffice to say that divorce was rampant um, in this culture. And so what these religious leaders are doing, they're bringing up, hey, you know what, we have this any-clause divorce. We know, and it's supported by Moses, so we're good. We're okay with it. But what they're doing is instead of actually living underneath the authority of the Bible, they're putting themselves above the Bible, and they were abusing the Bible to their own ends. And they were, because of that, they were destroying both marriages and people. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus lives the greatest life because he lived under the authority of the Bible. And we can follow his greatness by asking and pursuing the answer to the question, what does the Bible say? Um, And so that's the first thing that we see here. Um, As Jesus goes on, we see another principle of greatness. Following Jesus' greatness, we also want to live by God's intention and not by exceptions. Okay, you want to live by God's intention, not by exceptions. This is verses 5 to 9. Jesus responds and basically says, guys, you missed the point. He says, Deuteronomy allows for divorce in specific situations, but you have built our culture on normalizing the exceptions. Yes, Deuteronomy 24 says that if there's some indecency in her, and there were strict definitions of what that indecency would be, um, it's adultery, it's neglect, it's abuse and abandonment. And so Deuteronomy allows for divorce in specific situations. Um, And you can't end the discussion simply by quoting a verse that allows for divorce. The Bible has so much more to say than that. In fact, Jesus is telling them, look, God inspired Deuteronomy 24 because God knows how awful people can be and he wants to protect people from being abused by divorce. Okay, do you see that's what he says here? He says in verse 5, and Jesus said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. I mean, so often we appeal to the Bible. Um, not because we want to understand it or to live under it, but we want to manipulate the authority of the Bible for our own purposes. Right? This happens with the Bible. Man, this happens, this happens at work, doesn't it? Have you ever told your boss something? Right? You shared something with your boss so that you could ask him a question, but you only, or her a question, but you only told half the truth. Because you knew if you told half the truth, then you'd get the answer from your boss that you wanted, and then you could do what you wanted to do. But you knew that if you told the whole truth, you'd probably get a different answer. 
That's what these religious leaders are doing. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You kind of live by the intention, right? There's, the Bible invented the phrase, the spirit of the law. There's a spirit behind God's instruction. There's a purpose, and there's a person behind all of the commands. And Jesus says, we need to get at that. We need to see God's intention. And so he says, you need to look, when you look at all that God had to say about divorce, you'll be led to see what God's intention is in marriage. And so in verses 6 through 8, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Okay, look in your bulletin. You see where he says, but from the beginning of creation. He's saying, I'm about to quote Genesis. It says, quote, God made them male and female. This is a quote from Genesis 1, verse 27. And then Jesus goes on in verse 7. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 24. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going back to creation to talk about God's design for marriage. In the beginning, God created humanity. He created human beings in his own image. He wanted to fill the world, um, and he wanted to create the world so that you could look at what he created and know more about him. Okay, And the, the pinnacle of his creation, the Bible says, was human beings. And the Bible teaches us that when God wanted to fully image himself, that he is fully, most fully displayed in the male plus female nature of humanity. And he's saying here that men alone cannot image God fully on earth. Women alone cannot image God fully on earth. He says that the man leaves his family, holds fast to his wife. You have two people that are becoming one flesh. God's design of marriage at creation is for a man and a woman to join their lives together and to become one flesh. Like one flesh means one life together. Um, there's all kinds of people that struggle with this. When they think about getting married, they're, they're so nervous because they think, well, I don't want to lose myself. Right? I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about getting married because what if I, yeah, what, what, what if I stop being who I am? And, and I just, I just want to ask you that if you were to have someone with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, holding your hand, would that make any difference in the things that you choose to do, the things that you say, the ways that you think about life? Of course it would, right? Of course it would. What Jesus is saying here is that the two become one flesh. Guess what? That means in in some ways you do lose yourself. If you decide to get married, you are saying, no longer will I ever be the same. I will never, ever be completely an individual again. I will always be someone who is married to someone else. I will always be one part of one flesh with my spouse. And I think, actually, what happens is, um, I mean, well, I guess I just, I want to say that, like, the reason why that freaks people out is because it creates a very difficult situation. I mean, it does impede on our freedom. It does impede on our independence. In some ways, we don't have independence anymore because every decision that you make, every decision that you make, now affects the person who is one flesh with you. You're not free anymore. 
And I think in some ways there's people that want to enter into marriage and they think, all right, well, I really know I need to keep my freedom and yet I want to still be married. And if you're thinking that way, you're, I think you're doing it wrong. Okay? Now, there is another extreme where two people have to be together all the time. And I, I guess it'd be helpful for us to talk about that next because there are lots of people who think in some ways that their marriage is actually going to save them. There are some people, and they probably wouldn't use that language, but they think, no, 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 marriage is what's really, really, really going to make me happy. Like, if I could just get married, or once I am married, then I will really be happy. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, Single people, and this is not to beat up on you, okay? I promise, it's not to beat up on you. But there is a lie, okay? There is a lie that so many of us believe. And that lie is, I won't be happy until I'm married. Um, It's very tempting to believe that lie. There's so many people that believe that not being married is the center of their being. And that no matter what else is going on in their life, all they can think about is the fact that they're not married. Right? Things could be great. Things could be wonderful. Your job could be great. Your friendships could be great. Your future could look great. And yet, you think about that one thing that you don't have, and you let that define you. You let your marital status be like a cloud over your head, and you say, I will never be happy until I'm married. No matter how much of God's plan you're experiencing, no matter how much of God's mission you are on, you believe that you're not fulfilled until you're married. This is a lie. Um, And I think, and I don't say this, I say this with incredible trepidation um, because I have friends that I know and I love and because we are a church that lives in a city where we are wanting to express the love of Jesus. But I think our gay neighbors and our gay friends also are guilty of turning marriage into an idol. And... Man, the first thing that I have to say is that this is so complicated in our day because of the Supreme Court's recent decision and because there's also a movement to push for gay marriage and to redefine marriage away from God's intention at creation. And what's, what's I think, frustrating and, and saddest to me is that most of the people that are pushing are saying, we don't care what God's design is about marriage. We want this or we will never be happy. And I can say that what, what so many, and not, not every person who's gay is doing this, um, but man, there, there is something about feeling like if I'm not married, I will never be happy. It's just a lie. It's not true. Um, how do I know this? And hey, it's easy for me to say, right, because I'm married. <laughs> and I've, I've, that's been thrown at my face in all kinds of conversations. The reason I can say this is because I am married. And I can tell you that marriage is not all that you think it is. And everyone who just laughed are all the married people in the room. Um, there are married people who also think that marriage is the end-all, be-all. And there are married people who think that marriage will save them too. And they're living in it. And you know what you call them? Frustrated. Angry. Bitter. Disappointed. 
I'm not talking about every married person, but I'm talking about the married people that are looking to their marriage to be their salvation. If you're looking for marriage, whether you are married or you're not, to be the thing that will finally make you happy, that will finally let your life come together, that will finally make everything about you make sense, I can tell you that it's not going to work. Marriage cannot, nothing actually can bear that kind of weight outside of God. I really wish that, um, that these two groups of people could talk more. Um, I wish that single people and gay people could hear more specifically the problems that married people have. I wish that single people and gay people could hear how miserable marriage can be, um, how difficult it is, challenging it is, limiting it is, how it calls for constant sacrifice and the end of selfishness. When two people become one flesh, it completely, like I said before, limits your freedom. Of course it does. You can't make decisions anymore as though you're single. I think that what drives so much divorce in our day and age is that people want to be married or want to be in a relationship, but they don't want to be committed. But they want to be committed when it's good for them, but when it's difficult, they want the option to just be like, no, 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 no. I got my own life over here. You got your thing, I got mine. We're not all together. You know, some of us are separate. I mean, this is what we do. I think it's really sad. People see marriage as confining and restraining because guess what? It is confining and restraining. People are worried, man, I'm afraid to get married because how do I know if it's the right one? And they ask the question, it's kind of phrased in like, will I be happy if I'm married to this person for the rest of my life? And I think the answer is no. No, you're not going to be happy for the rest of your life, no matter who you get married to. I think if you ask a question like that, you're actually wrong-headed. You're not thinking about it the right way. You shouldn't think about marriage or entering a marriage with the top of your concern being, will this person make me happy? That is the opposite of Jesus' greatness. Right? Jesus is teaching us the opposite. Jesus says the two become one flesh. And so this means, as the only one who has control over you, you need to enter into marriage thinking, will I be able to make this person happy for the rest of my life? Right? Am I willing to spend the rest of my life committed to meeting this person's needs, no matter what kind of person they end up being that I didn't see before we got married? I think it's helpful if you are looking for a spouse to ask yourself these questions. Have I seen this person willing to work through hard times? Because that's a good indication. If they've been through hard times, they're willing to work through it, that's a good indication. Because guess what? Your marriage is going to be full of hard times. Have I seen this person able to handle conflict in a healthy way? It's really important because guess what? You're going to have conflict and you need to know how to handle it in a healthy way. Have I seen this person willing to sacrifice himself or herself for the sake of serving someone else? really important. If you don't see that now, you should pause and wait until you see it because there's going to be all kinds of opportunities for that person to willingly sacrifice him or herself for the sake of someone else. And if you're not making sure you're the same kind of person, then you're a hypocrite and your marriage is doomed to fail because you aren't the person you need to be yet. 
Now, what if you are already married and you're not the person that you need to be or you're married to someone who's not the person that they need to be? What if you're single, um, gay or straight, and you are idolizing marriage and you're thinking about marriage as the way that you're finally going to be saved? If you're in that place, I want to just say welcome to the church. I want to say I'm glad that you're here. I want to say welcome to the family because you are among friends. Um, You're among people who know exactly what it's like to be you. You're among people who are not what they need to be and are married to people who aren't what they need to be and who are, you're, you're in a room full of people who are thinking about their marriage, either perspective or existing, as ways that they can actually finally be happy and they're struggling greatly with it. And we'd be glad to have you join us. Um, the reason that we're here is because we struggle with life. <laughs> the reason that we're here is because we're trying to grow into the kind of people who can have healthy marriages and relationships. We're trying to grow into the kind of people who can be great human beings the way Jesus was. We're trying to become the kind of people who would serve others with our lives, who depend on God's authority and live under God's empowering word. And we're also here in this church because all of us have lives that we didn't choose and we wouldn't choose. I think this really is, like, gets to the heart. I mean, all of us, every single one of us, are struggling with aspects of our lives that we would not choose again if we could do it all over. Okay? Like, in the midst of this, I know that there are some of us who would say, look, looking over the big picture, like, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Because the bad outweighs the good, or the good outweighs the bad. Um, but every one of us, we are all in, we all have aspects of our lives that we wouldn't choose and wish would change and are frustrated, if we're honest. Many of our married people wish their marriages were different. Many of our single people wish their lives weren't so lonely. Um, many of our married people have wished that their spouse would just get into a car accident so they could move on. Shocked? It's true. It's true. It's not the sole defining reality of a person's heart. These are thoughts that people have. And so if you are dying to be married, just realize this is what is part of the package. We have single people who wish their lives weren't so lonely. And all of the gay people that are part of our church that I know wish their lives were different in different ways. Welcome to the family. I wish that our single people could hear the struggles of our marrieds and appreciate the freedom that they have in being single. I wish they could hear our married people talk about how marriage didn't save them and make them eternally happy. Um, Sex might be good, but it's not enough to sustain a marriage. I wish our single people could find that marriage cannot save and should not be idolized. And then I wish that our married people could hear the struggles of our singles who really wish someone would just open their home and actually adopt them into the family and create a community that they can be a part of where they don't feel like a burden.
And so, I mean, the point here is to live by God's intention, not by exceptions. I've talked a lot about how, yeah, God intends one man, one woman, one flesh for life. That's God's intention. Um, And yet, we fall so far short of that intention. And so, the next point that I want us to see from, from this is, what do you do with your guilt? And what do you do with your guilt? If you're married, if you're single, if you're gay, if you're straight, what do you do if you're not measuring up to the standard that God has and the intention that God has? What do you do if you know the intention and you might even believe and support the intention of God in marriage, but you're not, um, but you still struggle because you're frustrated and you're angry and you're discontent and you wish God did it differently and you wish you weren't like the way you were? Like, what do we do with all of this guilt? Think about it like this. Are you a failure when it comes to God's design for marriage? I know that I am. Okay? I know that I am. Are you a failure when it comes to God's design for marriage? Do you want to know the first thing that God says to you when you admit that you're a failure? What does God say to failures in marriage and divorce? God says, so am I. I want you to hear this. If you're a failure in divorce, God says, so am I. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God, this is God talking. For all of the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Friends, you might not know this. You might have heard me say this before. It is so important that you know this. God is a divorcee. If you have been through divorce, God understands what it's like to be divorced. So I think, what do you do with your guilt? You go to God with it, and God will say, Welcome to my family. People say that God doesn't understand. People say that God doesn't know what it's like to be us. He really does. He really does. And how much more in Jesus I think it's interesting when we think about what the Bible says. If you ask most Christians, what does the Bible say about marriage? They'll say one man and one woman, one flesh for one life. Then ask them, so how many examples of that do you see in the Bible? And then watch them squirm. Because how many can you think of? How many of these one man, one woman, one flesh for one life can you think of in the Bible? We've done this before. Right? Ruth and Boaz? That's like halfway through the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Joseph and Mary, but that's like Jesus' parents. Really, you have to go that far to get an example of this? Maybe Prisca and Aquila? I mean, we're not really sure, but... Esther and the king? Really? Come on. No, the king. He had all kinds of women. That's one man and a whole bunch of women bunch of fleshes. Maybe Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, the parents of John the Baptist. But again, really, we have to go to Jesus and John the Baptist to find this example. 
But what do we have in the Bible? From beginning to end, we have adultery, polygamy. Um, we have homosexuality. We have rape. We have incest. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. I mean, the heroes of the faith are failures in marriage and divorce. Why do I bring this up? Because I want you to know that these are God's people. I want you to know that if you are a failure, so is God. And so are his people. Welcome to the family. I'm serious. I'm not just trying to make it, I'm not trying to like gimmick this or or make it, I'm just trying to tell you that you're among friends if you're a failure in this. The amazing grace of God, his extraordinary and extravagant grace, the reality is that the Bible continues to affirm God's standard, but it makes room for people who are still striving to get there who are still struggling to know if they want to agree with it. Jesus says, follow me, and knows it's a process. So what do you do with your guilt? Well, you go to God. You see that you're part of a family that includes all kinds of people who are broken failures, just like you and me. And then I want to bring you back to look at Jesus' greatness. Because as difficult as it is for us to live under the authority of God's word, especially when God talks about marriage and divorce and sexuality, for all of us, even outside of marriage and divorce and sexuality, for us to live under the authority of God's word, maybe you don't struggle in this area measuring up to the standard of God. You might not be perfect, but maybe you're content in that. You're content with where you are. But all of us have things that we wish were different. All of us struggle to live under the authority of God's word. And we think, man, I wish God hadn't said that. I wish God wouldn't say this to me because it's really, really difficult. I don't like the fact that God says this about me when I'm single. I don't like that God says about this if I'm gay. I don't like that God says about this if I'm married, if I have to go to work, if I have to have a job, if I have to have family, if I have to have a broken relationship. If I, have to, I mean, everything, right? Our whole lives are characterized by God constantly reminding us what his standards are, what his intentions are, and all of us feel like, dang, are we ever going to get there? And if you feel that way, if you get overwhelmed by the idea that will I ever be good enough, I want to bring you back to Jesus. And I want to remind you that for Jesus, he followed this same plan that crushes us. He had to submit himself to the Bible. And it was hard for him too. Even as a man who was sinless. Like it's actually worse if you're sinless. Because at least when you sin, like the struggle goes away. Right? If you resist temptation, it gets worse and worse and worse. It's like you're going to explode. That was Jesus all of his life. But Jesus knew that submitting to God's word, living under the authority of God's word, meant that he was going to have to be rejected. Jesus knew that living under the authority of God's word meant that he was going to have to suffer and die. It meant that if he were going to live under the authority of God's word as the Messiah, he would have to be tortured and crucified. And so God's word led Jesus into a lifestyle that he wouldn't have chosen. It led him into a place that he didn't want to have to go. But he did it anyways. 
He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it so that we could tell the world that Jesus gets it. That Jesus knows what it's like to have a lifestyle that is leading you to constant pain and unending torment in this life. He did it so that in the midst of our torturous decisions, in the midst of the pain and the suffering that we have to deal with, we would know that it's worth it. Jesus did it so that we could see that when we put God's mission for our lives above everything else, then all of our suffering is resurrected. Let me say it this way, back on this issue of marriage. If you put Jesus ahead of your own views of marriage... The resurrection of Jesus proves that God will raise you from the dead and you will live forever. Okay? So in a thousand years, you will have spent 950 of those years somewhere else. This struggle will be over in 50 years or less, give or take for some of you. But think about that. In in a thousand years, you will have spent 950 years Somewhere else. And if you put Jesus ahead of your views of marriage and divorce, you will be resurrected from the dead to live with him forever. If you put Jesus ahead of your own views of sex, then listen to me. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God will raise you from the dead and he will meet all of your needs perfectly and forever. I mean, think about it. You follow the rest of Jesus' story. We're in Mark 10 right now. Right? We've got six chapters left that we're reading. Should we follow Jesus' ideas? Jesus is here demonstrating that the greatness of living under God's authority, the greatness of living under his why should we follow him? I mean, if we walked with him down this road with the disciples, they had to question it because he was crucified. He was tortured. He lost. But in the resurrection... And the resurrection is proof that we should follow Jesus. The resurrection is proof that his greatness is greater than anything else that you could possibly chase after. And there is nothing else, friends, there is nothing else that will satisfy you. There are, man... Anything that you want, if you put it ahead of Jesus and you don't get it, you'll never be happy. And if you do get it, you will never be happy. But if you put Jesus first, then whether you get what you want or not, you can and will be happy. That's the promise of the gospel. And we know it's true because Jesus endured worse suffering than anything we'll ever experience. As bad as our suffering is, he experienced it worse And he was raised from the dead so that we could know that there is hope, no matter how bad it gets. A hope this encourages you to want to follow Jesus. If you're a Christian or you're not, let this be the day that you say, Jesus, I'm letting go of everything else, and I'm just going to follow you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you continue to come closer even to us and show us that this is true? Would you help us to confess to you the things that we put in front of you 
Lord, help us to let those things go. And today we commit that we love you first and foremost, and we're going to follow you, and we're going to live under the authority of God's word, because that's what led you to resurrection, and that's what we want forever. Draw us near, whether it's the first time for those who are here who don't know you, or the 101st time for those of us who are Christians and are holding on to stuff in our lives. Help us to let it all go right now. Draw near to us and give us assurance that you understand how we feel, and you'll bring us hope.